from the New Living Testament, or the, the, the New Living Version uh, translation of the Bible. How many of you would say, um, if I had a little bit more money, it would make my life a little bit better? <laughs> the rest of you must have an injured shoulder, because... <laughs> uh, there's a guy named Dave Ramsey. He's a teacher. He talks about how to manage your money. And uh, he says, money is fun if you got some. You know? And I agree with Dave. When I have a little bit, it's, it's kind of fun. Um, the problem is, though, a lot of people don't have some money. And uh, people feel financially strapped. So today, I want to talk a little bit about the topic of money. Now, I feel bad if you've been at the church for a while and uh, you know, you've been talking to a friend at work or your next door neighbor saying, hey, you ought to come because it's a great church and people love the Lord and they're friendly. And so finally, you've got them to come and today's the day. And in the first time in two years, I'm talking about money. <laughs> Sorry about that, um, but just bear with me. I promise not to twist any arms, break any fingers or do anything manipulative. I'm just going to teach what the Word of God teaches. And, and we'll get through this and we'll be just fine. It'll be okay. Look at me and say, oh, it better be, Terry, or else. Okay. <laughs> One of the reasons that we can kind of get so strapped financially is that from time to time, we kind of do some stupid money, stupid stuff with our money. Um, or no, maybe you've never done anything stupid with your money. I've done some, has anybody ever done anything stupid with money before? I mean, I've done stupid stuff with money before, like with lots of zeros and decimals involved. I mean, I've done some stupid things. I, uh, here's, here's one, and this is actually, I look back at this now, and I can kind of chuckle about it. It was no laughing matter at the time, and it led to all kinds of havoc in our marriage. But Lisa and I have been married 38 years now, huh? Yeah, okay. So... Uh, 37 years, Th 30, a whole bunch of t years, you know. <laughs> Honey, we have all afternoon to make up, okay? So just, <laughs> but over 30 years ago, we went through this time frame in our marriage, uh, I think five or six years, I can never get this right, but I think we had like in five or six years, like 11 different cars, which is normal, right? No. Right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay, it's normal. We're in agreement where two or more agree. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what that scripture says. Anyway, so we had all these cars, and I have an affinity. I, I had an affinity, and I still have an affinity. I love cars. I just really like cars. I mean, I've had all kinds of cars. Um, I mean, I'm not out of control about it yeah. <laughs> anymore, but there was a time. There was a time, and, you know, I, I like to have cute little sports cars, and I don't have one now. I probably will again someday, but, but that's, that's neither here nor there. But there was this season where... I just needed a, a shinier, redder, faster car. I didn't care what I had now. It just was, I got to have the next thing. And we got to this point, you know, 30 plus years ago where I needed to have a little red Corvette convertible. I had to have it. So I hatched this plan, and the plan went something like this. I'm going to go to the credit union. I'm going to ask them. They're going to give me money. I'm going to have a Corvette. It's a pretty simple plan, and it will work really easier than it ought to. And so I had this thinking, I was thinking, okay, well, I really can't afford this. I can't afford the payments. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the car anyway. And then I'll sell my other car, which was a really nice Camaro. Four-speed, cool car, you know. <laughs> so I'm going to get the Corvette now, provide for it. I'll figure that out down the road. Problem is, the Lord was never in it. 
and we went off. I remember what should have been a really fun, exciting day for a young man to go pick up my red Corvette convertible. Black interior, four-speed, high-performance, the, the works. I remember driving home sick to my about this car I'd purchased. I get home, try to enjoy the car, tried to sell the Camaro, couldn't sell the Camaro. I mean, we got into financial trouble. Stupid thing. I'm the president of the club for stupid things with your money. Now, since that time, they've booted me out of the club, I hope. I mean, I haven't made any visits lately. But I think most of us at some point have done that or done some stupid things with our money. And I know that today, um, talking about money, I, first off, I want to say, I don't want any person in this room to feel one bit of guilt about anything we're going to talk about. So we're just going to kind of shake it off. If you start feeling guilty about something, just kind of shake it off, because <laughs> that is not the plan here. Scripture says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you start feeling heavy about something, that make the distinction between hell convicting you or, or, or condemning you, and heaven maybe nudging you about something. That's healthy. And you should listen when heaven starts to talk to you about something. But if, but if, if hell starts to condemn you, saying you belong on the death row, you're just dead, you're bad, you're blah, 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 that's hell, reject it, shake it off. Okay? Agreed? Agreed. Okay, Agreed. So, so far so good. So, okay, so we're going to go through a lot of scripture today. Today I'm going to make a few points, but I'm going to let scripture do most of the speaking to us today. And I'm going to start out um, with a really good one. Proverbs 22.7 says this, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower, the person who's in debt, is servant to the lender. Now, by the way, um, there's nothing extra that you can read into that. It doesn't tell you not to get into debt. Okay. Scripture does not say don't borrow money. You understand that. What it says that if you do, here's part of the deal, part and parcel. You can't get away from this. The person who's in debt is servant to the lender. Now, I looked at that word servant. The Hebrew word there is ebed, and it means a servant, a slave. It means someone in bondage. Sounds pretty extreme, but that's what the word means. The borrower, the one who's in debt, is a servant to the one they owe money to. Now, most of us don't go around saying, oh, I'm a slave to money. I'm in bondage. We just don't use those words. But what we do is we make other statements that imply that, but we haven't really thought that through. We say, oh, I'd really love to get married to my girlfriend, but we just can't afford it, so we're just going to live together. Or, you know, what they're really saying is that I'm in financial bondage here. Or oh, we'd really love to start a family right now. Or, you know, I'd like to have another child, or I'd like to adopt a child. What we'd, what we'd love to do is for one of us to be able to stay home to be with the kids, but what we can't do that because we can't afford it. We don't have enough money. And what they're saying without actually saying it is, I'm a little bit in bondage about finances. I'm kind of strapped within my family. I'd love to have a bigger home, or um, I'd like to move from a home that I'm renting to one that I can buy or uh, do that, but we just can't afford it, or... I just hate my job and I'd like to change jobs, but this one pays my bills, so I have to do it. Or, in other words, I can't do what I want to do or what I prefer to do, or I can't do what God is calling me to do because I'm in financial trouble. I'd like to help people in need, or I'd like to feed hungry kids, or I'd like to go on a mission trip. 
I'd like to give offerings sometimes beyond my tithes, but I just can't afford to do it. And what they're saying is that we're strapped. We're in a little bit of bondage. Okay, so here's some kind of interesting um, statistics that I found out about our culture. I'm talking about the American culture, not this church, but our American culture. The average household in America is in debt at 136% of their annual income. That's the average. The average. Average, a- average American household, 136% of their annual income. We owe more than we'll earn in a year by a bunch. Here's another one. For people who carry credit cards, nothing wrong. I have credit cards, okay? Um, for those who carry a balance, the average balance on their credit cards is $16,000. Okay, so about half of people who carry credit cards pay them off every month, about half. The other half who carry a balance, the average balance is $16,000 of revolving credit. That's a lot of big screen TVs, earrings, and lattes. I mean, it is. Or, you know, I don't mean to minimize, but I mean, it's just it's a lot of golf clubs. Okay, this will scare you a little bit if you're a parent. The average 21-year-old in America, right now, the average 21-year-old has $12,000 in debt. And by the time they get to age 28, the average debt is $78,000. That's mind-boggling for me. Now, this next one is probably the most poignant of of the statistics I'm going to give you. The average number of U.S. households living paycheck to paycheck is somewhere between 55 and 61%. No ability to set something aside, no margin. The minute the paycheck is here, it's already completely committed just to get to the next one. Man, this is discouraging, Terry. I mean, what are you talking about this? 55 to 61%. So that means if this crowd right here is average, over half of us, if we lost our job today, we have no ability to pay the, the house payment or the car payment next month. We're in trouble. And no wonder there's so much tension in our lives because this situation is normal. Tension has become normal, financial tension. You know, normal is debt. Normal is car payments. Normal is, is credit card payments. It's student loan payments. That's normal. Normal is fighting about money. Normal is divorcing over money. Normal is laying awake at night concerned about money. But I want to say to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to be normal. You do not have to be. We are not called to be normal. We're just not called to be normal. There's a better way. So today I'm going to take a look at what the Bible says. (laughs) I'm going to take a look at what the Bible says about money. Somebody doctored that photo. I don't know what happened there. I found an interesting survey um, on the the network that was put out by creditcard.com, and they asked this question of people. What are the topics that you would be very unlikely or somewhat unlikely to talk openly about with someone you just met. Okay, what would you be unwilling to talk to somebody you don't know? Hi, I'm Terry. Go into this subject. Here's the statistics about the average American. 50%. The sixth least likely subject you would be willing to talk about is weight. We don't want to talk about our weight. Don't bring it up. I don't know you well enough to talk about my weight. Okay? Wait. Okay. Now, what? I know it. (laughs) Yeah, you don't know what I talk about to the scales. What are you talking about? Okay. So, wait. 
Now, here's the, as, as I go through this list, these things become more intensely we don't want to talk about it. So we don't want to talk about the next one. We, want, we don't want to talk about it more than the last one. And that would be health problems, 62%. The next one after that is the amount of your monthly mortgage or your rent. So in other words, people would rather talk about their weight than their mortgage payment. You follow this so far? Okay. As we go down, we're getting to things people want to talk about less and less. The next one, 77%. The third most highest is salary. People do not want to, don't discuss my salary. I'd rather talk to you about my weight than my salary. The next one, 81%. The number two item people don't want to talk to someone they don't know is about the details of their love life. I'd rather talk to you about my weight and my mortgage payment and my salary. I'm not talking to you about my love life. And the number one thing people do not want to talk to a stranger about is the amount of credit card debt that they'd have. Did you catch that? They would rather talk about the details of their love life than how much credit card debt they have. That just tells us how much this weighs upon us. I suppose some of you are saying, oh, whoa, 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 whoa there, uh, preacher boy Terry. This, um, you don't have to talk about this in church. We don't need to talk about money. Money and church don't mix. Don't be talking about money here. And I have to say to you, you know, money is one of the most visible indicators of what's happening inside of our heart. Scripture is loaded with powerful teaching about money. And um, money is one of the subjects that, le- that Jesus talked about. In fact, you can do a statistical analysis and figure out how much he talked about different subjects. The subject he talked about most far and away is salvation. Second most about is money. Jesus talked about money second. Two-thirds of the parables that he told, the stories that he told making points, two-thirds of them are about money or possessions. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of every ten verses is about money or possessions. In the book of Luke, it's one out of seven. If you look at the entire Bible, the whole thing cover to cover, there are 2,300 verses, individual verses in there about money or possessions. That's five times as many as prayer. Five times as many as faith. Wow. It talks a lot about money. So this is my first message on money in two years. I guess I got to get caught up in one day. (laughs) So why is it that Jesus talks so much about money? I want to give you a few reasons that I believe, and we'll just explore and see them. Uh, Reason number one why he talked about it is, one, I believe that we are tempted to serve money. Matthew 6, 24 says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot. Notice he didn't say you will not. You cannot. It's impossible. You cannot serve both God and money. You just can't do it. Interesting to me that of all of the things that he could have said you can't serve besides God, he picked money. He could have said you can't serve both God and power, or popularity, God and yourself, God and your sexual desire. He could have said all kinds of things, but he said, you can't serve both God and money. I think he knew that for most people, money and things would be the number one competitor for your heart and mine. And now maybe you're saying, well, hey, okay, that makes perfect sense, Terry, but I, well, I'd never ser- I would never serve money. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. I would bar- argue with you that if you ever bought something that you didn't need 
with money that you didn't have to impress people that you don't like anyway? You were serving money. You know, you're under its powers. You're under its false promises that those things would somehow make you feel important or special or happy. I would, I would argue that if you've ever hoarded money, you know, hey, this is my sack. It makes me feel secure. It makes me feel happy. Therefore, I will not tithe. Even though scripture says the first 10% belongs to God. But he's not going to get any of mine because this is my stack. Hey, this is my money. Or you didn't give it to somebody in need when you really could have and should have. Um, I would argue that you're under the false promises that money is going to give you power and security and you're serving money. If you've ever compromised your family because, or neglected your family, you know, you know, pursuit, you're climbing some ladder and so you're thinking to yourself, well, I want to give my kids the things I never had and that's noble. Uh, but what they really want is to play catch. Or they want you there to help them with their math work, even if you don't know how to do it. What they really want is for you to be shaping their lives with your personal contact. Tempted to serve money. Okay, the second reason, um, the, the second reason that I think Jesus talks so much about it is because there is a spirit behind serving money. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Think about what is it that masters you? I mean, I think people have their different interests. And for me, sometimes I go from one interest and then I have another season of another interest. And I try not to let them master me. But sometimes things can get to the point in our lives where they master us. They just devour too much of our time and our efforts and our resources. You know, for some people, it's, it can be all kinds of things. I mean, the, the classical one that I would use an example like this is, you know, what matters you? Well, that's a drug addiction. Or, but it doesn't have to be something like that. It can be Facebook. It can be pizza. It can be fantasy football or some video game or sex. Or it can be drugs. And what happens is when things like that master us, we'll do whatever it takes to get that thing for us. People who have mastered sometimes drugs is a perfect example. They'll steal from their family to get what is mastering them? And um, Jesus describes this as a master. I didn't realize this till we were proofreading last night. I'm going to make this case um, about there is a spirit behind this as we go. But it, I, I always you know, put these slides up and I get this all done and I hand my pa- whole packet to Lisa. I say, honey, proofread this so I don't look like a complete idiot. And um, she says, okay. So she came to me last night as she's proofreading the slides and she said, did you realize you capitalized the word money? It's too late to get that. Can you go back to that slide? I don't know if we can or not. It's my fault. Sorry, Amy. But you cannot serve both God and money. And I didn't really, now I didn't actually type that. I cut and pasted it out of an online Bible I have. And I had not caught that that was capitalized like a first person pronoun, a name, not an object, but notice that it's capitalized. So I started looking. I started looking in the original words and the original, the, the original context. These are the words of Jesus. And I I looked at probably 15 different translations last night. About half of them have it capitalized and half don't. Um, So I don't know what that's all about. But do you see this is a name? This This is not something. This is somebody. You can't serve both God and another. There's a spirit behind that. 
And so, okay, now we go down to the next slide. Thanks, Amy, for backtracking there for me. Ephesians 6. You know, at the beginning of the passage, we know is where you put on the full armor of God. Here's what it says right there at the beginning of Ephesians 6. This is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps. A life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. Now, that's the message translation, which is very, you know, relaxed in its wording, Nevertheless, then, but here's, what, here's what, how Jesus describes it in John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here's Jesus talking about this struggle, and he basically says, says to us, we're either going to be victimized or we're going to prosper. Those are, it's binary. It's one or the other. We will either be victimized because of money or we will prosper. Interesting. It's like Jesus is saying, it's our choice. Do we want to be victimized, cursed, or do we want to be blessed? Now, some people insist on trying to make the world's way work for them. And here's the deal. If you try, the devil will do everything in his power to suffocate you, to steal from you, to sap your life, or you can be blessed. Let's, let's just let Scripture talk to us about that contrast a little bit. Um, Galatians 5 gives us a description of to people who have tried to make things, you know, those of us who have tried to make things work outside of the ways of the kingdom have to face the devourer and the fruit of the devourer. We'll talk about that. Here it is in Galatians 5. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits. This sounds like primetime TV to me. (laughs) The vicious, verse 21, the vicious habits of depersonalizing everyone into a rival uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. Wow. The message translation, by the way, will really grip you sometimes. And it's in today's street English almost. It's really interesting to read. Um, and it's the word of God. Proverbs 3.9, though, will somehow be contrast with that. Here's, here's God's way. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first and best of all your income. Then your barns will be full and your vats will overflow with fresh wine. And here's God's promise to you in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously We'll get a generous crop. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Now, very clearly, this is talking about giving to God. And I want you to know something. When the, the bag goes by here, if your heart is in a great big knot, do not put money in the, in the bag. God doesn't want that. He'll wait until something in your heart is free and released here. And I, I'm going to come to the minute too. The church doesn't need you to, to, to give money and then be mad at the church over doing it. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Please, we'll talk about that a little bit later. 
Some people think that tithing is only an Old Testament um, concept, so I'm going to give you Matthew 23. Now here's Jesus talking, and he's, he's having a chit-chat with some of the priests. He says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Okay, so he's chiding them for their attitude. Now he makes a statement about tithing. Yes, you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So question, what's tithing? Tithing is described many places in the Bible. The, the, the traditional verse that you see it on is in Malachi chapter 3. Um, there's a lot up there, but just to skip to the part in the center. Verse 10, bring, the store ho- bring to the storehouse a full tenth of what you earn, so you, there will be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, all-powerful. I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour out all the blessings you need. That is the only place in the whole Bible that you will find God giving you permission to put him to the test. It's the only place. Interestingly, it's also the place that Jesus spent all this time and effort because he knew that it would be the number one competitor in our hearts. And God is saying, hey, try me out. Put up or shut up. I mean, God is saying, you can test me in this. I won't be mad at you. You're going to be surprised by what, what happens. Test me. Give this a spin. Now, so that you know, I'm just going to share a little bit of stats about our church here. Because I want you to know I'm not preaching this because we are financially in need here. That is not the state of the affairs here at Crossroads Church. We are financially sound. We are very healthy. Um, and I, that's due to some really godly people who serve on our council, and they do a great job of, of helping to manage and oversee and balance those issues. And, but more even so, because this is a very faithful crowd. Thank you. I just want to, your pastor wants to stand in front of you and say, thank you for your faithfulness to tithe and give offerings here because it fuels ministry. And I just am grateful for your obedience to the Lord. Um, but here's some, here's some truth for you. This church's bills are paid in full every month on time. We, we, we have made commitments we say to the electric company, we're going to use your electricity. If you send us a bill, we will pay you back, and we do. Okay, we buy things, we pay for them. I mean, the church does it. About a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, we had a mortgage, and we looked at that mortgage, and we looked at our bank savings account, and we said, you know what, it seems good to us. Let's take this money, put it against that, and pay off this church mortgage. Praise the Lord for godly leadership and a council that, that has that kind of vision. So we just decided, okay, and we shifted over enough money. At, at the time, it was probably close to $70,000. Paid off the mortgage. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. And we don't have the weight of that upon us right now. That's a good thing, right? Amen. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know... Um, we, um, we don't have debt, but we do have savings. So we've built up savings since that time. And it's not that we're flush full of money. It's not like we got money coming. But we, 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 we take care with the money that you entrust to the Lord into our hands. And so we have plans, and so we build up some savings. We think, here's what we're going to do with that. And we think we're going to go this one direction with that, but then things come up. We're prepared. We had a plan. To, do, to go one direction, and then earlier in the spring, our, H, our, our heating and cooling system went toes up, couldn't be fixed, and so we th- said, okay, well, we, gotta, we have to fix that because we can't have it be too hot or too cold, and so, so we spent money to fix that. It cost us somewhere be- more, more than thirty and less than $40,000. It was a lot of money. We paid cash for it. I mean, it, 
our savings account went back down now, and we don't have this big, huge, fat, padded savings account anymore. We have savings, though. It's thousands of dollars that are in savings. That we, we are healthy as a church. I am not bringing this up today, because if you don't pay today, the lights are going to be on. No. No. So, here's the facts. Here's what the church not only did in terms of, man- that, I've told you how we manage our finances. I want to talk to you about this church's generosity, your, our generosity. We receive income, we receive your tithes and your gifts, and what do we do with that? Well, we have a budget and so forth, but the first item on our budget is us, we, we tithe. We give away 10% of the income that comes here just to go plant churches and to help other churches and to extend ministry somewhere outside of these walls. We get nothing for that. It's not, it doesn't serve anything that goes on here. We give it away. But we don't stop there. We give away to all kinds of things. We give away to missions and we give away food to people that need it. And you've given, we've, we've received special offerings here for tsunamis. I mean, I, I can't remember them all. Jan and I talked about this, but here are the numbers. In the last 12 months, last 12 months starting right now going backwards, we as a church gave away cash, gifts, donations, $39,153.72 in the last 12 months. The 12 months before that was almost that much, $37,553. So we've given away more in the last 12 than we did in the 12 before. Our generosity is increasing. In the last two years, we've given away $76,706.78. That's somewhere... More than 10%, less than 20% of our income. And that doesn't count some things. I mean, I wasn't just down to the, to the penny on this with Jen. There's stuff that we know we gave away that we didn't count. For example, you gave away all those bottles full of money, the baby bottle boomerang. I don't know how much money was in one of those bottles. But we had, I think, three laundry hampers. You know what a laundry hamper is? Full of bottles. I had to carry them. Yeah. Woe is me. I had to carry them from the office to the car to take them to drop them off. And they were so heavy, I thought the things were going to break. So I literally took everything out so that I, I mean, it was a lot. And it wasn't just pennies. Some of those things you stuffed full of green paper. There was a lot of money in those. Who knows how much that was? Probably thousands of dollars. They, they sent us a report that said, thank you. The whole baby bottle boomerang all over, you know, raised about $27,000. Praise God for that. I want it to be more next time because I want to save more you know, mothers and babies. But, um, but, um, but I know a lot of that was from you guys. Love your generosity. Terrific. Anyway, so now, why is all of this in the scripture put in the context of seed? We heard the word seed in some of those scriptures. I think it's important for us to know that the strength of the harvest is not in the power of the farmer. The strength of the harvest, what's coming on the harvest, the strength of that comes from the seed that's being put into the ground at the front end and what the Lord's going to do with that. I, I think a good thing for me to say to you, if you are a statistic, and nobody wants to be considered a statistic, but if you're somewhere in that statistic range of debt and tension, I think it's just wise to, for you to think and pray about how you can reduce your debt and how you can be more generous to give to need, whatever that would be. Okay, so um, we're tempted to serve money. There's a spirit behind, behind serving money. The third reason is that, I, that Jesus taught so much about this is I think we are tempted to love money. 
1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's a powerful statement. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We're tempted to love money. Did you catch that money's not evil? It's the love of money that's either good or bad. Money's not the root of evil. Money's neutral. You can use it for good and you can use it for evil. It's, it's the love of money that's wrong. Now, there are people who don't have very much money and they say, well, I don't love money. I don't have a lot of it. I don't, I don't love money. But some of them are consumed with having more. Got to have more. I got to find out how I can have more money than I have and that I don't seem to have. And when they see other people that have money, they become jealous or critical of those people. Why? Because they love money. A lot of people would look at rich people and say, well, they're rich because they love money. Okay, some of them are, but some of them are, have, have a lot because they are really good at what they do. Mm-hmm. That's legitimate. They work hard. Some people work hard and, and that produces fruit. And they use money and they leverage money, but it doesn't have them. Um, so my point about bringing those two comments is, but you can't tell if somebody loves money by how much money that they have. You can't tell that. It's not good to be judgmental like that anyway. If you've ever been the victim of that kind of unfair assessment, an inaccurate assessment, it's not good. I mean, maybe you have been. I have been. I've, I've got a fairly public life. I've been standing in pulpits for decades now, and you know, I've had people tell me that I live too high on the hog or that I don't live high on the hog enough, and I've had people tell me, well, you really shouldn't, you know, if you're going to stand in front of the people and you wear a sweater, there should, like, be a hole in the sleeve. <laughs> no joke. So that some people won't feel bad that you have a new shirt, and I, t- I want you to know, I don't dress to impress you, okay? <laughs> okay. I dress so I won't be naked. That's the reason. <laughs> Okay. I think, um, you know, but I have had people tell me, you know, you need to drive a clunker. You need to drive a nicer. You, you know, I've had people tell me all over the spectrum. And, um, you know, I just want to say that you can't tell whether somebody loves money by what they have or what they don't have. There, there's something different at that. I've, I hear some other comments that sometimes these comments might indicate a love of money. Um, If I had more money, it would solve all my problems. I wouldn't have to work. Now, here's a general, this is a general statement. This is not true in every case, but here's a general statement about that. You know, when people tend to get more money, they tend to have to work harder. I mean, generally speaking, you get a higher paying job, there's more responsibility, there's more problems, you pull your hair out more. You know, because I got hair, I must need uh, whatever that means. Um, there, there's, you know, more stress, more things to manage. So that's generally, generally speaking, um, more money sometimes means more work. Or people say, you know, if I had more money, I wouldn't be in debt. And I think after a certain point, there's not lots, you know, generally speaking, people get themselves on a trajectory. And more money only changes the trajectory to more debt, to bigger debt. You make a little bit more more money, you you take out a bigger car loan for a little bit nicer car the next time. That's the trajectory. There has to be something else that changes besides the external, how big the paycheck is. You you know, have you noticed 
that you don't hear any success stories of people who win the lottery? <laughs> they go bankrupt. I figure if the Lord wants me to win the lottery, he can get me my own ticket. I don't have to go buy one. <laughs> right? So, um, you know, I've had people say to me, would you ever win the lottery? I said, sure, I can win the lottery. I don't buy tickets. God can, the, the miracle can happen. It doesn't stop, start after you buy the ticket. It starts before. So, um, or here's another one that, you know, that I've hear, I hear sometimes, if I had more money, I'd be more generous. And statistically, that's just not true. You statistically look at American culture, and the more money people have, the smaller percentage of it that they give away. The reality is that money's not good, it's not bad, it's what you do with it. It's the love of money that's the root of evil. Um, plainly talking about loving money, here, Ecclesiastes 5 says, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And that's kind of a fine walk, fine, fine, fine line to walk because ambition is good and... and um, the desire to grow is good and the desire to provide for your family is good and that doesn't make you greedy. So sometimes on this topic, I hear, you know, I hear these comments, these stinging accusations out in the world about churches. They say, well, all churches want to do is control you and your money. You ever heard anything like that? All the churches, all they do is talk about money all the time. We don't do that here. Um, but at, in response to that, sometimes I've heard timid leaders in front of people saying, well, um, God doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't want your money. Plain and simply, you just can't support that position scripturally. You just really can't. It plainly teaches that God does want us to give him our money, some of it. I mean, if God didn't want your money, why would Jesus spend so much time and effort on it? Why would, why would the Holy Spirit have put so much of it into the word of God? So let's just, let's just wade nose first into that big accusation and just say, okay, why does God want my money? He's God. He can create it if he wants. He can print $50 bills if he wants. Why does he want my money? Let's just address that. That'd be fun. Let's take that on nose first. Okay, number one, why does God want my money? Yeah, that's the way that the kingdom is funded on this planet. Second Corinthians 9. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he'll provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Seed is how the kingdom is funded. Number two, why does God want my money? It's the way God supplies all of your needs. 2 Corinthians 9. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Third reason, it's the way God prospers you and your finances. 2 Corinthians 9. This most generous God who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals is more than extravagant with you. He gives you something you can then give away which grows into full-formed lives, robust in God, wealthy in every way, so that you can be generous in every way, producing with us great praise to God. You know, if you look through the Old Testament, you will never find a patriarch that wasn't blessed financially. There were no poor patriarchs. Fourth reason. Why does God want my money? Fourth, and this is maybe one of the most tender, it's God's way of examining your heart your faith and your trust in him and in his word. Luke 12 says, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be too. Whatever, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. Number five, why does God want me to give my money? At the end of your life, 
you'll be evaluated and rewarded according to how well you've handled what God entrusted to you. Scripture tells us to store up treasures in heaven where rust and moth and stock market crashes and oil embargoes can't get at it. And I think that this might be the big reason. Number six, why does God want me to give my money? He wants our heart to be authentically devoted to him first. Here's two scriptures. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these things will be given to you. And 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. This is about authenticity. We refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes. And we don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display, so that those who want to can see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. And that's kind of how we live here. You know, it's really how we live here. I don't share all of this today to make the offerings grow. I share all this today to make your freedom grow. I share all this today because I know what will happen. I, I can look back in my own life and see when my weight to have to take care of my family lifted off of these shoulders. Jesus' word says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the reason that he gets lighter is because he sticks his neck right underneath that yoke and he goes up like this and the weight comes off of here. Now that promise doesn't somehow require that or take away my responsibility to provide. The word says that a man will not, does not work, he will not eat. <laughs> I want to eat, so I wanna, I'm going to work. But, but I have a responsibility to go and to do and to be. But the weight of this doesn't land on me. So when, in a, when a recession hits our nation and people are losing their jobs and my boss comes and he says to me, hey, we're doing across the board salary cuts. I had to make that decision up at Living Water. I had to say to the entire staff, we're going we're gonna to have to reduce everybody's salaries here. We had to lay off a few people. And we did that a couple of times a number of years ago, including me. And those who made those decisions took, our position was we were going to take the biggest cuts. We were going to take first and most and hold out the longest because that's what I believe is righteous leadership for people to make those decisions. I made those decisions, but I also knew that for my household, it, wasn't, it, it was going to have to be okay because the faithful one would be faithful to my wife and to my daughters and my sons. So I live differently. I want you to have that kind of freedom too. Next question, practical. When should I give it? 1 Corinthians 16 says, on the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money you've earned. Don't wait until I get there and try it. So basically, when you get paid, how should I think about this and we're done? We're going out the door. One thing I want to, these are just personal comments and then out the door. You should get over the notion, the fear, that if you give something to God, you're going to have less. You should get over that notion. That works on pencil and paper. But in God's economy, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, the, the Lord rebukes the devourer and things that would have chewed into your resources, chewed into your resources and consumed your money. When you don't tithe, I promise you, the devourer eats more than 10% of your money. Stuff happens. And you have to pay for things that you wouldn't plan to and wouldn't want to. And it's, I'm, I'm telling you, I've seen this and I've heard it over and over again. It's going to be more than 10%. Um, so you shouldn't, you shouldn't 
labor under the fear that you're going to have less. Second thing is, is that this is, I'm going to bring some balance to this. Something I heard, you know, my pastor, Pastor Burt, say and teach about, and that is this. As you live the rest of your life, you should carve your name on hearts, not on tombstones. And here's what I mean by that, about that, um, what he was teaching. You know, this brings balance. The tithe and all this talk about money is this subject that I have to walk real tenderly on because we don't want to give information about how much credit card debt we have, right? Remember that chart? And so we can get all balled up and focus on this and go away from here discouraged, but I want to say this to you instead. Some words are written in stone and in tablets. The Ten Commandments come to mind. Those words condemn us. None of us can make them. None of us can live to them. So they stand as, as something that would just buy, the, 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 the word teaches us that the letter of the law kills, but it's the spirit that gives life. And that's what Jesus did. Instead of writing the law on tablets, he wrote, wrote his name on my heart. And he gave me life and he gave me freedom. You need, when you go out of here today, with Jesus' name on your heart, not with a list on tablets of things you have to do to satisfy God. I think you should think like a farmer. I think you should think like a farmer. If you have a need, you should be planting some seed. Here's what I, here's, here's, here's what I mean by that. If you're a farmer, what would happen to your family if you took all of the seed that you're going to plant for this season and instead you bake bread with it? For a while, your family's tummies would be nice and full. But when the harvest time came and the bread was all gone and there was no harvest, you know, if the head of the household does not think about this topic of tithing correctly, it's the family that pays the price. So if you have a need, don't eat the seed. That's clever, isn't that cute? (laughs) That's his, not mine. And then I just want to say to you, you should put God to the test here. That's what his word promises you to do. I want to pray with you. Lord, I just ask that, um, that this not take on a, a sense of heaviness that is not you, but instead a sense of faith and promise and hope. God, I know that I bring this subject up at a time when our economy just isn't there and people are trying to live with more demand and less resource. But God, it is true. You do own the cattle on a thousand hills and you have promised us that, that if we that we can test you in this and that if we put our faith in you, as you say, if, we're, if we tithe as you say, that God, you will open up the windows of heaven and pour out a bounty and a blessing that can't be contained. I ask for that blessing to be our, our, our future. I ask that to be our present. Lord, for people here today who are just brokenhearted about this message and they don't know how to get there from here, I just ask God for you to bring peace and to order their steps just like your word promises you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen.